From the Partnership for Public Service, you're listening to Transition Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at presidential transitions. I'm David Marchick. Today on Transition Lab, we have a slightly different approach to the episode. Because events are moving so fast, and with respect to GSA, so slow, we wanted to press pause to reflect on the state of the transition. As our listeners know, the partnership's goal is to make transitions better, faster, smoother. Well, that's not going so well. So let me start with a few brief comments on the state of play. After I do that, we have three amazing guests who have previously appeared on Transition Lab. Ken Burns, the legendary filmmaker, Eric Rauschway, the historian who has written extensively on the worst modern presidential transition, Hoover to Roosevelt, and Josh Bolton, President Bush's former chief of staff, who is credited with creating the gold standard of transitions, the Bush-Obama transition during the financial crisis. So where are we today? We're releasing this podcast on November 23rd. Polls closed three weeks ago tomorrow. The networks called the race 16 days ago. Since then, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Nevada have completed their vote counts and announced there will not be recounts. Georgia completed their count, did a hand recount, and certified the election. Pennsylvania set to certify today. Republican governors and senators from red states have congratulated President-elect Biden, as has former President Bush. The largest businesses in the United States have said the transition should move forward, but it is not. Unfortunately, the General Services Administration, typically a highly professional, non-political agency, one which in fact has done a great job on transition planning before the election, they have not ascertained the apparent winner under the Presidential Transition Act of 1963. President-elect Biden is moving forward, but the formal launch of the handoff is stalled. Now, importantly, the GSA is not the Electoral College. They don't determine who won the presidency. The administrator is only supposed to determine who, quote, apparently won in order to start the transition process, to release funds, to provide real estate, and to provide the apparent winner access to federal agencies. Importantly, ascertainment would in no way compromise the president's legal rights or his ability to pursue legal challenges. That's why many Republicans have said the GSA should go forward and in the infinitesimal event that President Trump wins his court cases, the GSA could then reverse course and ascertain that Trump won. Nonetheless, we wait. For some reason I can't ascertain, President-elect Biden is not yet receiving intelligence briefings. I'm not aware of one elected official Republican or Democrat, who has advocated not allowing those briefings to go forward. As I often do in times like this, I turn to history. Bill Antholis of the University of Virginia wrote a wonderful piece called It's Not That Close. He looked at all 59 presidential elections in the history of the United States. Only four elections were too close to call, 1800, 1824, 1876, and the year 2000. We'll talk to Ken Burns about those races. This is not one of them. Even in modern election history, this election is not close. 
Jimmy Carter beat Gerald Ford by 11,000 votes in one determinative state, Ohio. Bush beat Gore by 537 votes in one swing state, Florida. Kennedy's margin over Nixon nationwide in 1860 was 118,000 votes. Nixon, not the paragon of virtue that one holds up, conceded the next day, claiming that a recount and court battle would be, quote, devastating to America's standing in the world, end quote. So what happens now? Well, despite the lack of ascertainment, the Biden team is doing exactly what it should be doing, moving ahead with the transition. Biden is taking congratulatory calls from foreign heads of state, albeit without support from the State Department. He is receiving national security updates from his team, albeit without the benefits of intelligence briefings. He has announced his COVID task force, but that task force can't talk to the Departments of Health and Human Services and the Pentagon on those agencies' plans to distribute the vaccine. He's named as chief of staff and 13 other senior White House aides, but they can't even apply for final security clearances. And Biden is working on support for small businesses, but doesn't have access to data from the Small Business Administration on how many restaurants, bars, and travel agencies will fail in the coming months. Every day, I receive calls from senior Trump officials saying how they would like to work with the Biden team on the vaccine, on economic issues, on national security issues, but they can't. In a report the Center for Presidential Transition issued last week, Christina Condre found that because of the delayed transition in the year 2000, President Bush had only half as many senior officials in place at the 100-day mark as President Obama did eight years later. Half. And soon thereafter, 9-11 occurred. Don't take it from me. Here's what Dick Cheney, then the Bush-Cheney transition chairman, said in November 2000. Quote, there's been a tendency, I think, for many people to believe that there is, quote, plenty of time, end quote, before we begin to pay any kind of price for the delay. But we will pay a heavy price for the delays in planning and assembling the next administration, end quote. That's what Dick Cheney said 20 years ago today. The Partnership for Public Service has worked on a strictly bipartisan, nonpartisan basis all year, with the Trump White House, with the agencies, and with the Biden transition team. We provided data and advice on second-term planning to the Trump White House in case they won. Peaceful transitions of power have always been nonpartisan, nonpolitical issues. That tradition should continue. I'm hopeful this will break soon. The Biden team has assembled the most professional, organized transition team ever. Future Republican Democratic transition teams will study their model just as many studied the Romney model. The White House did a terrific job implementing the pre-election requirements of the Presidential Transition Act. The agencies responsible for transition planning are ready. It's time. As Cheney said, if we wait any longer, America will pay a heavy price. With Thanksgiving around the corner, I wanted to give you a personal reflection. 116 years ago, my great-grandfather, fled the pogroms in Poland to end up in the promised land, Cheyenne, Wyoming, where my father grew up, dirt poor, one of only a couple hundred Jews in Wyoming. Because of the pandemic, 
I've only seen my 86 and 82-year-old parents once since February. I'm thankful they're in good shape. I'm also thankful for my family, my wife, and my two teenage children, both of whom unfortunately want social distancing from me. I'm thankful for the amazing team at the Center for Presidential Transition for their outstanding work. And I'm thankful for our democracy, for those who built it, especially for those Republicans and Democrats who work to unite us. Despite our division, we strive to be one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. I hope everybody stays safe this holiday. Thank you for listening. And now let's hear from Ken Burns, Eric Rauschway, and Josh Bolton. So Ken Burns, legendary filmmaker, you're the best at what you do in the world, at what you do. Thanks for spending some time with us. Let me ask you this. Is there an analogy in U.S. history to what we're seeing today in the United States? Definitely not. We are in totally unprecedented territory. There has been nothing like this before. We've had many, many crises, constitutional crises, civil wars that are, of course, the greatest crises that we have. But in terms of the extraordinary record of the United States since its founding, to be able to hand off to each new administration smoothly, more or less, uh, the the workings of government has been one of the signal testaments to the strength of our republic. And all of that is being undermined. All of that is being uh, tested and called into question now. So I think I'm beginning to see that the crisis that we've been in for most of the last four years, combined with the extraordinary crisis, the overlay of COVID, combined with our reckoning with our 401-year-old virus called about racial injustice, we are in a kind of perfect storm that in some ways outranks in terms of the fragility of this machine to go of itself, the Second World War, the Great Depression, and even the Civil War. Wow. So Ken, let's look back on history at both successful handoffs and fumbles and the implications of those successes and failures on the country. How do you see those in the past affecting what you see today? Well, you always want the example of the peaceful transfer, the ceding of power. It begins with George Washington giving up his military commission. It begins with George Washington saying, two terms, that's it, I'm gone. So the next interesting moment happens when John Adams, after one term, presumes that he'll be, like his mentor, able to have two terms. But Thomas Jefferson, another student and disciple of George Washington, says, "Uh uh-uh. And so they're at loggerheads. But as it turns out, they end up in the electoral votes um, Adams is a, and, and another candidate of, of the Federalists, distant uh, third and fourth, and tied are Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. And Alexander Hamilton, who is diametrically opposed to everything that Jefferson and Burr represents, nonetheless realizes that Jefferson is the true patriot. And he urges the Federalists to throw their support towards Jefferson, lest somebody as unqualified 
uh, as Burr should get it. So what you have is somebody subsuming their own self-interest, their own political inclinations for the greater good. That was one of the great things coming out of Washington. It's if Hamilton, yet another disciple of Washington, had, had read the memo, got the message about giving up your military uh, commission, which of course King George famously said, well, then he's the most powerful man on earth. Then giving up the presidency, which everyone would have been happy for George Washington to have for life. And then setting in motion the fact that this was going to be fractious, but we were going to be all in this together. Then in 1864, we had election in the middle of the Civil War. No country had ever had an election in the middle of a Civil War. And the nominee up against Abraham Lincoln, George McClellan, was their former general of most of the soldiers, the Northern soldiers. He was a terrible general in terms of committing them to battle, but every mother's dream general. He kept the camps clean, free of disease, and uh, hospitals were good, and they were well-fed. And yet those soldiers voted, as did the rest of the country, overwhelmingly uh, for Abraham Lincoln. It's one of the most moving moments in the history of the republic. But then you go beyond his assassination to the election of 1876. Samuel Tilden wins, wins the popular vote, the governor of New York. But Rutherford B. Hayes becomes president. He's from Ohio. And the reason is, is that two electors in Florida, I can't make this up, in Florida, changed their vote. But they changed their vote from the the Democrat Tilden to Hayes under the quid pro quo that all federal troops that have been enforcing reconstruction, a good thing, not what gone with the wind and birth of a nation tells, a good thing that all federal troops are withdrawn from the South. And when they do, reconstruction collapse. The Republicans made the first of many deals with the devil, meaning, well, we don't really have to care too much about the very reason why we formed as a party, which was the emancipation of the slave. Uh, we can be more interested in business and conquering the continent and that sort of thing. And so what happened is, is that reconstruction collapsed. White supremacy was brutally uh, reintroduced across the old Confederacy. Jim Crow was the law of the land. The Ku Klux Klan was ascendant. Monuments were built for the first time to these Southern uh, uh, generals. The flag of the uh, Ku Klux Klan, which is only one battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia, not the flag of the Confederacy, starts working its way into the state flag, first in Mississippi. We all know the rest of the history. We essentially postponed any addressing of civil rights for literally decades and decades. And then, of course, though it was a difficult transition, Herbert Hoover, miserable and unhappy that Franklin Roosevelt wouldn't join with him in some joint projects between Election Day and January 20th. They'd moved it up from March 4th because the country needed to have you know, uh, a, a continuity of, of government and, and not such a long lame duck period. Roosevelt wouldn't touch it. He had his own agenda and he couldn't be in any way identified with what he believed were the failed policies of Hoover. So it was strained, but nonetheless, it went through. And you can think of Gore handing to Bush, despite the fact that some scholars believe that a recount would have produced a several thousand um, uh, advantage to Gore in Florida had a recount actually been happened, but was stopped. So you have these moments where even though you're sort of upset that you've lost, You've done something that was bigger than yourself for the republic. And I think what we're not seeing now is that impulse towards serving something bigger than yourself. So at some point, this crisis will end and the unbroken chain of smooth handoffs that started 223 years ago will continue. 
So looking ahead in 20, 50, or 100 years, how will history record this moment? Well, from your lips to God's ears about that actually taking place, it has to happen first before we can then have a perspective back. But lots of variables are involved. I made a film on the history of the Vietnam War, and if I'd made it 10 years after the fall of Saigon in 85, in the middle of a recession, when Japan was ascendant and America was sort of losing its mojo, you would have thought that Vietnam was the ball and chain, the death knell of the American superpower. If you'd waited 20 years until 1995, in the middle of the greatest peacetime expansion we had had to date, uh, when we were the sole superpower, Vietnam would seem important in terms of an event in the second half of the 20th century, but just a blip in America's upward progress. If you'd waited uh, 30 years to 2005, you've got uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were being bogged down. There's asymmetrical uh, terrorism that's going on. So each generation rediscovers and reexamines that part of the past that gives their present meaning. So assuming this republic survives, however fragilely it is constituted going forward, um, it will be for those future years to look and find different aspects of this moment to report back if that makes any sense. When I was a boy, the centennial of the Civil War took place in 61. I was uh, eight years old. It was all about guns and troops and movement arrows on battle maps. When our Civil War came out, it was much more than that. It was about uh, something that could acknowledge the participation of African-Americans, of, of women, of bottom-up as well as top-down biographical narratives. So each generation sort of seeks its own relationship to the past. That's why, in some ways, the future is a little bit set. The past is extraordinarily malleable. That's why I'm in that business. I love that malleability. Well, Ken, you have written and produced works with eloquence about how the countries come together after moments of fracture, the Civil War, Vietnam, other moments. Let's assume the transition happens smoothly at some point in the next few days. How long will it take for the country to come together after this moment of fracture? You know, there is surprisingly quickly things can heal. I'm not saying that things were healed from the Civil War. Uh, there's one moment at Appomattox when a now defeated Confederate soldier comes up to the Union man and says, this war is never over. I hate you, sir. I hate you. And clearly that has continued, as Barbara Fields, the Columbia University scholar, said in our film at the very last moment, you know, the Civil War is still going on. It can, it's still being fought, and regrettably, it can still be lost. However, I think that symbolism is hugely important, particularly with the office of the president. And just changing the tone, just changing the degree of empathy or listening can be hugely great. Think of the transfer, the difference between the dour Herbert Hoover out of his league, though a great, great patriot and a great humanitarian, uh, and Franklin Roosevelt. You know, uh, George Will told me in our, in our Roosevelt series that the best of the Roosevelt New Deal programs was his smile. And then we think always when we talk about it, even in the most superficial context, that it's the fireside chats, infrequent, though we think they were constant, infrequent, that brought people into the intimacy of government. And for the first time, government became an active force in people's lives, a countervailing force in the tensions between labor and capital. So all of these things can happen overnight. However, 
we're not all on the same page as Americans. That's really, really clear. It used to be growing up, there were three nightly newses you could watch, ABC, NBC, or CBS. People had access to local newspapers, mostly filled with AP or UPI stories. Um, you could read, if you were lucky and had access to it, the three great newspapers of the United States, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. Doesn't matter what their editorial positions might be or yours, you just knew there was a set among this accumulated information, a set of facts that we could all essentially basically agree to. And while parties differed in that way, it wasn't over the very existence. You know, we don't have to debate uh, with the flat earth society anymore, thank goodness. But in some ways, that flat earth society has been replaced by a whole host of conspiracies and causes that have their own individual rabbit holes. And I, I think it's incumbent upon a leader to try to say, look, you don't have to abandon your own pet theories here, but let us get back to at least an agreed upon set of facts that this thing, climate change, is happening, that vaccines, that science works. That's what keeps airplanes in the air. That's what keeps cars moving down the highway. That's what keeps our lights uh, turning on. And, and I think we've gotten away from it. Richard Hofstadter, the great uh, historian, talks about the paranoid style in the American mind. Our two great oceans have insulated us from unbelievable threats from the outside. But as Lincoln predicted, the threat would come from within. We would be the authors of our own suicide, he said. We will live through all time or die by suicide. And, and he, he, he's explicitly acknowledging what, what is able to incubate here. In a positive sense, it's freedom and innovation and improvisation and entrepreneurship. And right now, we're all individual free agents, and we've got, and that's been encouraged by some interests. And we've got to figure out a way to come back and devote ourselves in a spirit of civic engagement to things bigger than ourselves. And, you know, for most people, that just means your neighborhood. Your, your town, you know, whether your fire department needs a new pumper or whether you could wait another two years before you replace one. Uh, in other cases, it may be, who do we let in the G7? You know, what's our stand on Paris Climate Accord? Where are we with the Iran nuclear agreement? All of these very, very complex things, but they're all essentially the same thing. They require a concerted, collective American willpower. And if there are people who are making money and who are promoted by uh, their promotion of divisiveness, then we've got a longer uh, road to hoe. Well, Ken Burns, thank you for taking time out of your busy day. Thanks for putting this moment in perspective. And I'm going to close with something you said the last time you were on the podcast, which was optimistic. And I'm hoping and praying that the celebration of our American history and the foundations of our democracy will continue in the days and months to come. Ken, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure, David. Thank you. Let us step back a little bit and celebrate that since 1797, when George Washington gave up the presidency after two terms and John Adams took over, we have had an unbroken succession of presidential administrations. No troop has been alerted. Nobody's fought and said no. They may have gone unhappily, but they've gone. We created a government unbelievably imperfect in its scope and understanding and yet able 
to hand off the ball without a single fumble. That's amazing. Let's celebrate that. After speaking with Ken Burns, I dialed up UC Davis professor Eric Rauschway. He wrote the book Winter War, which is about the Hoover to Roosevelt transition. Let's hear what Eric has to say. Eric Rauschway, thanks for joining. You were on earlier this year, and I was so moved by what you talked about in terms of the Hoover-Roosevelt transition. I wanted to have you on again to talk about this moment. So thanks for being with us. Glad to join you. Thank you. Let's reflect on the moment we're in and how this transition compares to the Hoover-Roosevelt transition in 1932, at least so far in this transition. Well, let's compare these transitions on sort of two levels. Currently, the uh, president who has lost the election is declining to recognize the uh, loss. So that's a, he's refusing to concede formally. And of course, this owes in part to his massive differences with his opponent in substance, although it probably has as much to do with his personality as anything else. If you compare that to 1932, Hoover conceded the presidency immediately or almost immediately. It was uh, you know, late in the evening of election day that he sent a message to Roosevelt acknowledging that Roosevelt had won the presidency. So Hoover, so far as I know, never attempted to interfere with the actual apparatus of a transition to his successor, never intimated that he had in fact uh, won the election or anything like that. In substance, though, in terms of his policy differences with Roosevelt, Hoover refused to concede the argument, if you like, and he spent the long period of the transition trying to prevent Roosevelt from being able to see through the New Deal that he had promised uh, in a variety of ways. So what was the cost to the country of the lack of cooperation between Hoover and Roosevelt? Obviously, Hoover was trying to convince, as you mentioned in the podcast and you wrote in your book, Winter War, which I recommend to everybody. Basically, Hoover spent the whole four months trying to convince Roosevelt of the wisdom of his policies and the fallacy of the New Deal. What was the impact on the country and our recovery of that lack of cooperation? Well, if you could uh, let me take a second here to remind folks where the country is in 1932-33, which is to say you have an unemployment rate that is up near, if not quite at, 25%. You have people actually going hungry, while meanwhile, uh, commodity prices are so low that farmers are declining even to harvest their crops and letting them rot in, rot in the fields because they can't make any money off bringing them to market. So the economy is effectively broken at this point in 1932-33, so much so that be in large measure because people have stopped making their debt payments, particularly the mortgage payments. Banks are starting to go under a truly fearsome rate. They had failed throughout Hoover's term, and there had been sort of waves of bank failures. But when you get into 32 and 33, there is a much larger one, and it accelerates to really quite dramatic levels. And it looks like the entire financial system, possibly even the Federal Reserve System, will have to shut down. And Roosevelt's run on a campaign of government intervention, right? That's what the New Deal is about. They're going to subsidize crop prices. They're going to relieve unemployment. They're going to get people to start buying things. And they're going to regulate the financial sector and kind of put it back together. And Roosevelt begins to acquire advice through the period of the transition that he needs to take aggressive action, which is to say to shut down the banking system, audit the banks to make sure that the ones are sound, are in fact sound, and let them reopen again. And he says he's going to do this as soon as he takes office. And in fact, of course, we now know that is what he does. As soon as he takes office, he shuts down the banks. He uses that same mechanism 
to induce inflation, that is to say, to help bring prices up by going off the gold standard. And many economists believe that this is the reason that you see a recovery start right there in March of 1933, when Roosevelt takes office, is this idea that the uh, government is now behind the banks, the banks have been stabilized, and there is an expectation of inflation, which means that you want to start spending your money if you have it, and that's what gets the economy going again. Now, if you understand that to be what happened, in fact, you should also understand that that could have happened a week earlier, two weeks earlier, three or four weeks earlier, and that recovery was available to the country a little bit before it actually occurred, had Hoover been willing to do it. And as you know, Hoover refused to declare a bank holiday. Roosevelt advised Hoover that Roosevelt would be declaring a bank holiday immediately on taking office and that Hoover should go ahead and declare one that would expire at noon on March 4th. And Hoover declined to do that. And Hoover was, of course, on principle against inflationary policies. Hoover delayed the recovery. That means that a lot more people lost their jobs. A lot more mortgage payments went unpaid. A lot more banks collapsed. A lot more people lost their savings. And given that we're talking about a time when people are actually starving, some people actually died, right, as a result of this delayed recovery. So it's quite a considerable cost. So one other thing that you've written about, which I've been seized with uh, in this moment since the since the election, is that Hoover went on post-election essentially to be a constant critic of both Roosevelt and Truman. So what did he do? For how long did he do it? And how might Hoover's behavior post-election, post-loss, be an indicator of what might come in the future with President Trump? Well, uh, when Hoover was asked late in his life how he had won the arguments over so many of his New Deal and New Deal style opponents, he said reportedly, well, I outlived the bastards. And that's, uh, that's key. He survived until 1964, not quite the election, but into 1964. And he lived to see, therefore, his idea that opposition to the New Deal should be the centerpiece of the Republican Party become, of course, the message of the standard bearer that year, Barry Goldwater, who expressly drew inspiration from Herbert Hoover. In the very second year of Roosevelt's administration, Hoover published a book called The Challenge to Liberty. It was one of a series of writings in which Hoover explained that the New Deal and programs like it posed, as the title suggests, a fundamental challenge to American liberty, and that needed to be the message of the Republican Party. Hoover described what we would nowadays call something close to libertarianism as uh, the principles that are in the Ark of the Covenant for the United States of America, and that only the Republican Party could be their true defender. And that message, as you know, wasn't the mainstream Republican message in the 40s or the 50s in the era of Dewey or Eisenhower, but it gradually became uh, the mainstream Republican message. Hoover had influence, as I said, over Goldwater and before him over Nixon, the kind of people who were likely to describe the New Deal as something akin to treason in the case of Nixon. So Hoover became a very influential figure in reshaping the Republican Party as the party of anti-New Deal measures. As to how that might uh, correspond to you know where we go next, I think the, the main difference between Hoover and Donald Trump, well, what, one of many differences, is that um, Hoover's outward persona, 
uh, is much more moderate than what you get in his private writings or indeed his political writings. And so Hoover eventually sort of was somewhat rehabilitated in establishment Washington. I don't know if that'll happen, uh, but I guess I guess we'll see. Eric Rauschway, author of Winter War and an expert on the Hoover to Roosevelt transition. Thanks for being here. Thanks for taking time. And thanks for sharing your wisdom. Happy to talk to you. Thanks. We've now heard from two incredible historians. Let's return to the present and talk to Josh Bolton. As you recall, he was President Bush's former chief of staff, and we wanted to talk to him about how to make the remaining part of this transition as smooth as possible. Josh, as you recall, on George W. Bush's instructions, led efforts for more than a year to create red carpet treatment for either John McCain or Barack Obama to enter the White House. At that moment in history, we were at a time of two wars, and later, the time of the financial crisis and the Great Recession. The Bush-Obama transition is widely seen as the gold standard of transitions. Josh, thanks for being here. Thanks for carving time out of your busy schedule. Thanks for having me, Dave. So Josh, in your day job, you run the Business Roundtable, which is the most influential business organization that represents the largest businesses in the country, Walmart, J.P. Morgan, Johnson & Johnson, General Motors, et cetera. What are your CEOs saying to you about the transition? Well, they're concerned. They see a pandemic, an economic crisis. They see 10 million Americans out of work, and they're concerned about how well this transition is going to work. You know, when companies execute a CEO transition, they, they often work many months and sometimes years to prepare. A presidential transition is the largest takeover of any organization anywhere on the planet, and it has to occur in just two months. That means 4,000 new political appointees, over 1,000 of them who have to be approved by the Senate. And what, what our CEOs see is that that difficult process of presidential transition, which is challenging under the best of circumstances, has been already shortened from 78 days to 60. So their view is that you know, not not for the political good of President-elect Biden, but for the good of the country and, and the economy, the, the transition should get going now. And you worked in the 2000 recount, which shortened that transition from 75 days to 37 days. How did that shortened period of time affect your transition, the Bush administration from being ready, and the impact on the country? Well, there are a lot of differences between... Uh, today and the the 2000 election. The the biggest difference on the election front itself is that the entire Bush-Gore election came down to one state, Florida. Whoever won Florida would win the presidency. And in Florida, at the end of the initial count on election day, George W. Bush led by just 537 votes out of more than 6 million cast. So it it was a genuinely close election, genuinely contested. And there was litigation over over recounting and what kind of recount ought to be held and so on. And ultimately, what happened is that the Supreme Court had to resolve it. So big difference from, from today for the Trump campaign to overturn the uh, the outcomes that um, have been announced and are 
progressively being certified by the states uh, would require a change of tens of thousands of votes in, in several states. It's a very different circumstance. But we did have a circumstance where it was genuinely contested and the Supreme Court in 2000 did not rule until mid-December. So we weren't able to get the transition going until I think December 14th. We were well organized. We had an experienced vice president who, uh, who was in charge of the transition. The president-elect had already named his chief of staff, so we were ready to go, but it was, it was still a challenge. It was not a, by any means an insurmountable challenge because of this. Here's, here's the most important difference between 2020 and 2000. In 2000, the new president was taking over in at least what appeared to be a time of peace and relative prosperity. There, there, were, there was no ongoing crisis and there were no crises on the horizon. Now, ultimately, eight months later, 9-11 happened, so it was a very different environment. But at the time of the transition in 2000, uh, we felt we were able to navigate reasonably well with, uh, with a truncated transition, but a very different circumstance today. The, uh, the incoming president has, will be taking over a country in, in truly severe crisis, maybe uh, certainly the biggest crisis of this century and, and maybe the biggest crisis of, uh, of the last hundred years. And uh, the president needs to be ready. His team needs to be ready to address the health effects of the pandemic to make the country as prepared as possible as we face another wave of infection and deal with an economy that has been delivered an enormous blow by the pandemic and needs to be able to do that all of that quickly and a, a delayed transition every day counts and is uh, is making it ever more difficult for the president elect to do his job properly when he becomes president. So presumably the standoff will end relatively soon. How can those involved in the transition on, on all sides, the White House, the agencies, the Biden team, how can they salvage this bad situation and create the smoothest possible transition moving forward for the benefit, as you said, of the American people? Well, first of all, I have to say I've been impressed with the professionalism of the Biden transition team. They, these are experienced hands. They're approaching this the right way. It comes from the top. The president-elect has set the right tone of seriousness and focus, and I think he's trying to do it in a no-drama way to borrow something from the, the last Democratic president. So I, from, from where I sit, they, they seem to be doing the right things. Um, they've, got a, they've got a lot of experienced people in place, and they've got an organization that is ready to move in and start interacting with the agencies once they get that permission to do so from the... Trump administration. And what needs to happen is that is that the Trump administration needs to give the green light. In the transition that, that I worked in from George W. Bush to Barack Obama, the Bush administration was at the president's direction, well-prepared, not just inclined to be cooperative, but also had done a lot of the work that we thought would be useful for the incoming administration. 
And that meant, for example, on the National Security Council staff, they, they prepared several dozen memoranda on individual issues that, uh, that said, here's what we found when we came in. Here's what our policy was. Here's what's happened. And here's what we think needs to happen next. And they, they had that on every issue from the threat of uh, North Korea to uh, handling the situation in the Middle East to relations with Europe and so on, so that uh, whoever came into the positions, and at the time these were being prepared, we didn't know whether it would be John McCain or Barack Obama, at the time that the new team came in, they would have already written the, a good summary of the of the best advice that the outgoing people have to give. Now, the new folks don't have to take that advice, and and in fact, in a in a change of administrations, and especially when it's a change of parties, you're likely to get a different philosophical overlay on on issues. But the factual basis, the the insight on what's already happened, and what the current administration has been trying to do, in many cases, is invaluable to the new people coming in. And that's what should be happening in a transition. Unclear whether that is what's happening now. And what about the Senate? Obviously, the Senate has a role to play, and you experience this so what's the role of the Senate in, in facilitating a smooth transition? Yeah, I've been through the confirmation process, and it's, it's pretty rigorous. It takes a long time, and there's, there's a lot of paperwork and interviewing and so on and background checks that need to happen. And for that to happen with more than 1,000 people, uh, polit- senior-level political appointees, is really hard to do. Again, even under normal circumstances, it takes way too long, and there are far too many people trying to be stuffed through a pretty narrow funnel. So the incoming administration has to prioritize on whom is it most important to get through that funnel first. And I assume for the Biden folks, it'll be be the cabinet. And then if I were in their shoes, I would be focusing on key national security positions and key healthcare positions, because those people need to get on the ground and be able to, to lead their agencies as rapidly as possible. And, and so a delay in starting up the formal transition just makes it all that much harder to get people in, in place promptly. In the case of the Bush administration in 2001, we were delayed in getting a lot of our, our senior folks in place. Uh, as rapidly as as we should have been able to, because we had we had only half the transition, and again, we were doing that in what appeared to be a time of peace and relative prosperity. And for an incoming president to face that uh, in a time of crisis is uh, is really a major disservice to the nation. My final question is this: I want to go back to your day job. So you talk every day with CEOs of the companies that are manufacturing the vaccine. And, you know, the current administration should get credit for Operation Warp Speed and the quick development. And you're also in talks every day with CEOs of those who are going to distribute the vaccine and, you know, clear their parking lots and and get the vaccines into 300 million Americans' arms. 
What do they want to be happening today? What what do they want to see in terms of getting that vaccine out? Well, they want guidance as, as rapidly and as clearly as possible. The folks working on the vaccine, they have a good template. They, they know what they're doing. They deserve enormous credit. I'm thinking here of, of Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson, both of whose CEOs are members of the Roundtable and, and uh, Moderna and the others. They've just done a spectacular job in getting safely through the process of identifying effective vaccines much faster than even the most optimistic scientists imagined could be possible. So, so huge credit there and credit to the administration for making sure that the structure and resources were there to encourage that process along. Now, actually distributing the vaccine around the country and around the world is an enormously complex logistical problem. And what those who are going to be involved in that need at this moment is advance notice and clear guidance on what their role is and, and when they need to do it. It's, uh, uh, hopefully things will move rapidly enough so that this process will have to start under the Trump administration. But it, I am quite confident it'll go in much more smoothly if the outgoing Trump senior health officials and the incoming Biden senior health officials are communicating closely with each other so that we don't, we don't have a sudden gap when noon on January 20th comes around. I mean, a, a, a lot, so much depends on that smooth handoff to make sure that the vaccines are, are getting around, that I, I think it's an imperative that there be good communication between the outgoing Trump folks and the incoming Biden folks. Well, Josh Bolton, I hope what you're saying turns out to be correct. I hope this moves smoothly and quickly. And let me thank you for your time today. And most importantly, thank you again for your service to our country. A pleasure. Thanks for what you're doing. If you like Transition Lab, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast apps.